Please open your Bibles to the Gospel according to Mark. Mark chapter 4 is where we left off in our week-by-week, verse-by-verse study of the good news of Jesus Christ. I haven't done a lot of preaching out of the Gospels in the 15 years that I've been here, coming close to 15 years, and so I've really been enjoying going through the Gospel according to Mark thus far, and I've heard the same from many of you. What a blessing to be able to, through faith, walk and talk with the Lord Jesus Christ and behold his mighty deeds. And that's really Mark's focus in these opening chapters, the mighty deeds of God in Jesus Christ, in the person of Jesus Christ, demonstrating that he is truly the Son of God who has all authority given to him in heaven and on earth. And today, as we come to Mark chapter 4, verse 35, and then continue through chapter 5, we find three of the mightiest miracles that are recorded in the Gospels. Jesus Christ has been healing all kinds of diseases. He's been casting out many demons, showing his authority over physical and spiritual forces. But today, this morning, we're going to look at three miracles that are so remarkable that they're actually kind of scary. These miracles are so powerful that they produced a sense of genuine terror in the hearts of those who were in the presence of one who had this kind of power and authority. And so may we also share that same spirit this morning, the way the disciples responded to Jesus, the way that the crowds responded to Jesus, and the way that a family responds to Jesus with this great fear that is also together with great respect for God come in the flesh. You know, we are afraid of the forces of nature. We are afraid of the forces of evil. And we are afraid of the inevitable death that each one of us is going to have to face. But here in Mark chapter 4 and Mark chapter 5, we find someone who is stronger than the forces of nature. Someone who has power over the forces of evil. And someone who is able to even turn back death itself after it is laid hold. And so, with that in mind, let's have an opening word of prayer before we read the scripture text. Father God, we thank you for the privilege and opportunity that we have in this moment to behold the works of Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that you would give us all eyes to see, to behold the almighty power of the Son of God. And Lord, pray that your Holy Spirit would teach us the spiritual lessons that we are to learn from understanding the power and authority of our Lord Jesus Christ. May we be a people who live in the truth and are therefore fearless because we have the most fearsome leader of all. We pray this for our good and for your glory. Amen. Well, follow along in your Bibles as I read for us Mark chapter 4, starting in verse 35, down to the end of the chapter. On that day, the same day when he was teaching in parables by the seashore and explaining them to his disciples in private, on that day, when evening had come, he said to them, that is his disciples, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. 
But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? This is a miracle so remarkable that it is actually terrifying. Can you put yourself in the shoes, the sandals, of these fishermen out on the sea? More terrifying than the storm and the threat of drowning is being in a boat with a person who can tell the wind to stop blowing. What would you think if you were in that situation? You know, we've all become too comfortable. We've all become too at ease with God, the divine. The truth about who God is and who the Lord Jesus Christ is rests too inconsequentially upon us. We have become familiar with the truth to the point of numbness. And I'm praying that this morning as we look into these true accounts, these true stories of what Jesus Christ did when he was there in Israel, that we will have a little bit of that sense restored to us. That our hearts will once again become sensitive to the fear that we are supposed to have in the presence of God. And we are in the presence of God. Jesus Christ is here with us today. And the Bible says that there is a special blessing. In fact, the only blessing, spiritual blessing, comes to those who tremble at the word of God. They were filled with great fear when they saw who Jesus Christ was and when they realized whose presence they were in. Now Christ's authority over the demons and Christ's authority over disease and even his authority over the Sabbath here is extended to his authority over the winds and the waves themselves. And as we had in our scripture reading in Psalm 107 a little bit earlier, you see that the power to stop a storm is the power of God alone. Not only in Psalm 107, but also in Psalm 89, also in Psalm 65, also in the book of Job, and many other places in the Old Testament, it is only God who has authority and power over nature in this way. When the disciples behold the power of Jesus Christ and are astounded, when they are no longer afraid of the wind, but now are in great fear of him who is in the boat with them, they ask that question, who then is this? And that's a good question for you to ask this morning. Who then is this? I'd like to remind you what the scriptures say concerning him in Hebrews chapter 1. You could jot down the reference there, Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, where we are reminded that it is through him that God created the world. That when God created the world, how did he do it? The Bible says, by the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and the earth and all of its hosts. And the Bible reveals to us that the Son of God is the Word of the Lord. And so it is through the Son that God the Father created all things that exist. And when it says 
he upholds the universe by the word of his power, the he there is not referring to God the Father in heaven. It is referring to the Son, Jesus Christ. Do you know that the whole universe that we exist in is upheld by the power of Jesus Christ? You know that, but think about it. The molecules that make up your body held together by the will of Jesus Christ. The sun, burning 93 million miles away. It is burning and is held together. The laws of physics continue to operate according to the will of the Son of God, who became a man and dwelt among us. The Lord Jesus Christ is the cosmic creator. He has all power, all authority, And he's a man, a resurrected man, a glorified man, yet still, he is our man in glory. And he is our leader, and he is our shepherd. The guardian of the stars in space is the one who is with us here this morning, who is speaking to us through his word. Do you respect what God is doing here? Do you fear and tremble in his presence? If any of us thinks that we know him, we have not yet come to know him the way that we need to. He is mightier than the forces of nature. And that is shown in this true historical account of his calming of the storm in such amazing contrast with his humanity. Here is the man Christ Jesus asleep in the stern of the boat. He is so exhausted physically, that he is able to maintain sleep while the boat is being pounded by the waves, while the fishermen are running around yelling at each other, trying to save their lives, he's still sleeping. That is a deep sleep. That's a deep sleep that not only comes from being extremely tired, but it's also a deep sleep that comes from being extremely peaceful. The humanity and the deity of Jesus Christ are are so marvelously put together in this one story that we see them side by side and it's hard to understand. It's hard to gain a full appreciation of. Now, when we think about the Lord Jesus Christ, I also wanted to remind you of what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6. For us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. The wonderful doctrine of the Trinity displayed in creation, here focusing on the Father and the Son, of course the Holy Spirit was involved with creation as well, but the Bible really focuses on the will of God, the means of Jesus Christ as the Word of God, the Son of God, and somehow the the presence the superintending presence of the Holy Spirit as you read through Genesis chapter 1 and other parts of the Bible that talk about how God created the universe and how he maintains the universe. Now this particular miracle here in Mark chapter 4 is the first one that was performed for the disciples that we have a record of. His other miracles were done for people in the crowds, people with demon possession, people who were sick with various illnesses. Peter's mother-in-law was healed. But this miracle is done for all of the disciples and it's done to save them from 
a situation that could have led to death. And so as a miracle that was performed for the disciples, I think it has particular value for us as the disciples of Jesus Christ. We're not the crowds looking in from the outside trying to determine who Jesus Christ is. We are those who are with Jesus Christ, who know that he is the Son of God, who know that he is the Messiah and the Savior. And here, this miracle teaches us what we need to know. Now, look back in the verse there where the disciples wake up Jesus and they ask him a question. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And allow me to spend a couple of minutes of applying this to us in our situation. Does it ever seem to you like God doesn't care about what's going on in your life? Does it ever seem to you like things are out of control and not going in the right direction and that God seems to be not paying attention to what's going on? In those moments, are you a person of small faith? You can know whether or not you're a person of small faith by whether or not you ask God, don't you care? If you ask God, don't you care, that is an indication that you have small faith. And God, in his great love and his great patience, he bears with us when we have small faith. But make no mistake, small faith is our fault. Small faith is something that we need to be corrected for something that needs to be rebuked. And Jesus Christ does rebuke the disciples for their smallness of faith. They are somewhat blaming Jesus for his response to the situation when they wake him up and they say, don't you care that we are perishing? That's not the proper respect that they should have. That's not the proper fear that they should have in the presence of God the Creator come in the flesh. And so they have to learn the lesson. And we have to learn the lesson. Do you disrespect God by having small faith in the midst of troubles? As I said earlier, John chapter 14, verse 1, is a wonderful command that we are responsible to obey. You are responsible to not let your heart be troubled, to believe in God and to believe also in Jesus Christ. The disciples here, they were failing to believe in God. They were failing to believe in Jesus Christ. Their faith was so small. Look what he says. Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? They didn't have enough faith to think that the Son of God would take care of his sheep. They thought that Jesus was going to let him die. They didn't have enough faith to think that God the Father who sent his Son into the world was going to let him perish in a storm out on the sea. That is illogical. That is irrational. That is foolish. They knew that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. And do they think that he's going to drown in this storm? Well, they think, well, maybe he'll survive, but the rest of us are going to die. What smallness of faith. They were timorous. They were unmanly in the face of danger because of the smallness of their faith. So how about you? What are you afraid of? What keeps you up at night so that you can't sleep? What disturbs your soul so that you are anxious and troubled in your heart because you don't have faith? Confess it to God. Confess the smallness of your faith. Ask for him to give you a proper respect for God and to recognize that Jesus Christ has all authority in heaven and on earth. 
And if he allows you to be battered by the storm, it's only to test you as to whether or not you have faith in him. At the end of the same chapter, he repeats the command. Jesus gave us this wonderful promise. Peace, I leave with you. My peace, I give to you. The peace that allowed Jesus Christ to sleep in the midst of the storm, he says, I'm giving that to you. You can sleep in the midst of the storm. And I was down in Florida for a number of years, and we had a lot of hurricanes. And there was one hurricane that was coming directly at us there in Naples. And everyone was boarding up their windows and getting ready for the floodwaters that were going to be coming in. And people were evacuating and going to different parts of Florida or leaving the state altogether. It was a big one. For whatever reason, we decided that we would stay. And as the storm came, it, the winds beat against the house. The floodwaters didn't seem to be coming. We got to the eye of the storm where things calmed down. And I said, well, Jamie, there's nothing really else that I can do here. I've, I've picked up everything off the floor. We put everything that could get drenched that's valuable into the dishwasher so that it's watertight. Unplugged everything and boarded up. I'm going to sleep because there's nothing more for me to do. And so I slept through the second half of the storm, and I said, God, take care of us. Well, that's the peace that God gives. You can sleep through the storm like Jesus Christ because you trust in him. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives. And then the command is repeated. Let not your hearts be troubled. Don't let it. You say, well, how? How do I not let my heart be troubled? It just is. I can't stop it. God's word, prayer, fellowship with the saints, the tools that God has given us to strengthen our faith, to grow in faith, that's what you do. It's not a matter of sheer willpower. It's a matter of the word of God doing its work in those who believe. Meditate on the word. Pray. Fellowship with the saints. Your faith will be strengthened and your heart will not be troubled. Your heart will not be afraid. If all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him, then let the peace of God guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Let's go on to chapter 5. Follow along in your Bibles. We've seen Jesus Christ's power over nature. Now we see Jesus Christ's power over the forces of evil in spiritual places. Jesus Christ has already cast out many demons, but this story in Mark chapter 5 is unique. There's no other confrontation with the satanic world and Jesus like this one. And there's a reason why this one stands out in the minds of the apostles and why Peter told this story over and over again and why the Holy Spirit led Mark to write it down for us. Follow along in your Bibles. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs. And no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. 
Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. We'll stop there for now. This is one of those accounts, again, eyewitness historical account. It bears all the marks of an eyewitness account, and we know that it's Peter's eyewitness account that is being written down by Mark. That this is one of those stories that is fascinating and raises a lot of questions. This may be the most bizarre incident in all of the Gospels. Jesus' first miracle was casting out a demon in the synagogue. But here we see Jesus Christ confronting what seems to be thousands of demons at once. Now this Gerasene demoniac, as he is called, is kind of a terrifying fellow. He can't be bound. He has a whole legion of demons inside of him. He lives among the tombs and he appears to be more of a monster than a man. Violent and dangerous. You'd stay far away from such a person. And the question arises, how did a man come to be in such a condition? And the Bible doesn't tell us. Is there anyone in the world who is like this today? Driven to madness by unclean spirits? Not able to be contained by straitjackets or padded cells? Dehumanized by the effects of sin and unclean spirits? We don't know. This is an interesting story. Now, the unclean spirits, they cry out, I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Interesting thing for an unclean spirit to do. An unclean spirit begging in the name of God, not for the Son of God to cast him out. Very strange indeed. When in verse 10 we are told that Legion was begging Jesus earnestly not to send them out of the country, Luke reveals to us that the reason why they didn't want to be cast out of the country had to do with the fact that they did not want to depart into the abyss. You say, well, what's the abyss? That sounds interesting. We do have a little bit more information on the abyss. You can read about it in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 9, verses 1 and 2 talk about the abyss also in verse 11 of that same chapter. It's the bottomless pit. That's what the word abyss means, the bottomless pit. And the Bible reveals to us that the bottomless pit is a place where unclean spirits are imprisoned before their final condemnation into the lake of fire, the second death prepared for the devil and his angels. And so there are some demons, it would seem from a proper reading of Scripture, who are currently in this bottomless pit, locked up, not able to cause havoc in the world of men. And that these demons were begging not to be cast into the abyss. Interesting to see creatures who were without mercy begging for it. Interesting to see the unclean spirits who were tormenting this man and everyone that he came into contact with, begging not to be tormented. And the question, of course, has to be asked, why did Jesus give them permission to enter the pigs? Why not send them into the abyss like they feared? 
It would seem like the humanitarian thing to do. Wouldn't the world be a better place if God would take all of the demons and put them into the bottomless pit right now? He has the authority. He has the power. The demons fear it. Why doesn't he do it? Well, let me be the preacher to tell you that God's purpose in this time, this age that we live in, is not to make the world a better place. That's what the humanists want. The humanists want to make the world a better place. But God has a much bigger design, a much more awesome goal than just making the world a better place. God wants to rid this world of evil once and for all. And he has a plan that he is working to accomplish just that. It is not the time for God to cast the demons once and for all into eternal destruction. This is the time where God allows the demons to do their work in the world. All according to his plan. All according to his purpose. God is purposing to redeem the elect, to judge the wicked, and to create a new heavens and a new earth, and it's all happening according to his timetable, his plan. So don't fear. Don't let your heart be troubled. You don't have to fear what Satan and the forces of evil can do. Satan said to Jesus that this whole world has been given to him and that he has authority to give that power to whomever he wants. And you look at the people in this world who have more power than any person has ever had before with the weapons that are at their disposal, with the technology that they have, with the learning and the increase in learning that we have to be able to do things that people were never able to do before. So much wealth and power concentrated in the hands of a few very evil men selected by Satan to rule over the world. And you might say, that makes me a little nervous. But God says, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Do not be intimidated by the forces of the enemy. In time, God will deal with each and every one of them. In Matthew chapter 8, where we have the parallel account in Matthew of what Mark is recording here at the beginning of chapter 5, we find out that the demons cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now that detail that is included in Matthew chapter 8, verse 29, tells us the answer to our question. Why doesn't he cast them into the abyss now? It's not the time for that. God still has work for these demons to do in his plan in defeating them. God uses even the forces of evil to accomplish his purposes and his work in the world. Now, good news, that time is coming to its end. Revelation chapter 12 reveals to us that when Satan is cast out of heaven and he comes down to the earth and sea with great wrath, it's because he will know that his time is short. The demons know about God's plan. They know about God's timetable. And we get great insight here from Matthew chapter 8, verse 29, which we just had up on the screen, that they knew that when Jesus Christ came the first time, that it wasn't yet time for them to be tormented. It wasn't yet time for them to be cast into the lake of fire. They had enough insight and knowledge of God's plan that went even beyond what the Jews knew and what they understood. Because Satan and his demons, they studied the Old Testament prophets and they understood it better than the Jewish people did that there was a time that God had appointed for their destruction and that it wasn't yet. And so when they saw Jesus, the Son of God, face to face, they said, what are you doing here? It's not time for you to destroy us yet. Very interesting insight, isn't it? 
Now, let's go on and take a look then at the response of the people to this mighty work of Jesus Christ. He cast out thousands of demons in a face-to-face confrontation with the forces of Satan. So the herdsmen, who were watching the 2,000 pigs that rushed down and drowned into the sea, why did the demons want to go into the pigs? Why did they drive them down into the sea? I don't know. I don't think like a demon, thankfully. There's a lot that we don't understand about them. But you do see their destructive nature, their desire to destroy, and that as soon as they went into the pigs, there was this suicidal tendency manifested in the pigs. The herdsmen, they're responsible for the pigs. They've just seen something they've never seen before. You know, pigs can actually swim. And so for these pigs to drown, it's a supernatural force that is at work here. Pigs don't drown normally. And the herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. They go around and all the people are coming out from the small town of Gerasene and from other villages around. Of course, the people who own the pigs are probably coming too to see what it was that happened. And they came to Jesus and they saw the demon-possessed man, or the one who had been formerly demon-possessed, right? The one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were, there's our key word, they were afraid. Now they had been afraid of the demoniac. He's howling in the hills. He's cutting himself in the tombs. You can't bind him with a chain. He breaks everything that you shackle him with. That's pretty scary. But now someone more powerful has come along. Someone who was able to cast the demons out of that terrifying man. And when they see that power and they're in the presence of that power, they're afraid. They were greatly afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. Isn't that interesting? Why? Why are they begging Jesus to depart from their region? It's the same response that we see in Luke chapter 5, verse 8, from Simon Peter. When Simon Peter saw the power of Jesus Christ in his presence, recognized who it was that was in the boat with him, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Whenever someone is in the presence of the holy God, there is fear. Throughout the Bible, beginning to end, great fear comes upon every man and woman who stands in the presence of the Almighty. There is no one like Him. Very intimidating. And not only is His power intimidating, but His holiness is intimidating. God, the Almighty, the Holy One, spoke to the people of Israel in the Old Testament and He said, if I came up in your midst for just a moment, I would consume you. The holy fire of God would destroy sinners if He was in our presence for just a moment. And so God does not reveal the fullness of His holy presence in the world today lest sinners be consumed in the fires of His wrath. And here is the Holy One of God standing in their presence. And the natural human response, the natural sinful response is, go away. Go away. And so Jesus does. As he was getting into the boat, 
the man who had been possessed with demons, begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he, the one who had had the legion, he went away and he began to proclaim in the Decapolis, a group of ten Gentile cities that were in alliance together. He goes to all these different places in the Decapolis, telling them how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. This is the miracle that God did for the Decapolis, this Gentile region on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And the missionary that God sends to the Decapolis was this insane, demon-possessed man. That's the one God chose to declare the coming of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, in the Decapolis. The last person you would expect. The last person that anyone else would choose. A maniac. A suicidal, violent offender. Jesus says, you, I want you. I'm going to heal you, I'm going to cleanse you, and I'm going to send you to go tell people what God has done for you. Now, when he says, go and tell them how much the Lord has done for you, that's a reference to God the Father, how much God has done. But notice that the man, he goes away and begins to proclaim how much Jesus had done for him. And don't let that be lost on you. God in the flesh is Jesus. And what God the Father had done, he had done through Jesus. And it's the same to tell people what the Lord has done for you as to tell them is what Jesus has done for you. Great verse here from Psalm 66. Come and hear all you who fear God. There's our word fear. And I will tell you what he has done for my soul. The garrison demoniac went throughout the Decapolis and he said, come and hear all you who fear God and I will tell you what he has done for my soul. Let me tell you who I was. Let me tell you where I was. Let me tell you what I did. And I'll tell you what God did. That's all you need. You don't need a seminary degree. You don't need years of Bible study. This man wanted to be with Jesus. He wanted to be his disciple. But that was not God's purpose. That was not God's plan. He said, you have what you need to do what I want you to do, go do it. Some of us are always just waiting for more training. Oh, don't send me. I'm not the one. I can't go and tell people about God. No, that's what Ray Comfort does. No, you. If God has saved you, if God has delivered you, then go and tell people what he's done for you. That's all it takes. Let's do it. Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet, and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. Jesus has demonstrated his power over the forces of nature. Jesus has demonstrated his power over the forces of the demons. And now Jesus is going to demonstrate his power over death itself. My little daughter. Luke tells us that this is an only daughter. We find out that she's about 12 years of age. And he's imploring Jesus earnestly. He's so glad that Jesus Christ has come back from the other side. He's so glad that those people on the other side 
that he doesn't even know about told Jesus, go away. And in God's timetable, Jesus went away, and now he's here just in the nick of time for this man to find him and say, please, please save the life of my little daughter. Can you imagine the demands that were made on Jesus? If you had the power to heal, everyone would be knocking on your door. You would not get a moment's rest. Everyone in the world with every problem is coming to you. And Jesus is there. He's there. He's not hiding out in some five-star hotel with a team of security agents vetting who gets to talk to him. He's getting off the boat and people can touch him. People can talk to him. He is a man of the people and he is there with all of their demands resting upon him. And so he goes. But as he goes, there's a great crowd following him and thronging about him, crushing him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd. Can you see this woman struggling through the crowd, pushing past people bigger and stronger than her in her desperation to just touch his garment? For she said, if I touch even his garment, I'm going to be made well. And she's swimming through the crowd. If I just touch him, if I just touch him. And she does. Somehow she gets there. And immediately, the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Twelve years of suffering at the hands of physicians who didn't know what they were doing. Maybe some of you know what that's like. And Jesus, aware of it, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, this is a really fascinating story as well, right? immediately turned about in the crowd. And he said, who touched my clothes? Who touched my garments? And his disciples were like, you're crazy. The crowd is pressing around you. Everyone's touching you. And, And yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith, has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. I'd love to say a lot more about this, but we're going to move on and we'll come back to it next week and we'll see the role that faith has in being made well in the healing ministry of Jesus and the apostles. But we don't have time to focus on that this morning, so let's finish the story that Jesus is going to heal the little daughter on the point of death. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear. There's our word again. Fear. That's the word that ties all this together. Fear of the storm. Fear of Jesus. Fear of the demons. Fear of Jesus. Fear of death. Do not fear. Only believe. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Let not your heart be troubled, is what he said in John chapter 14. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. 
they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. And he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him, Peter, James, and John, and he went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, this inner room, the house of the ruler of the synagogue, 12-year-old daughter has died. He takes her by the hand and he says, Little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately, the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, but she's old enough to walk. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. You know, they thought it was too late. Well, Jesus had come back just in the nick of time, and the man in his desperation had found him and implored him, and Jesus had agreed to come, and then he got the news, it's too late, she died. It's never too late for God. Don't fear, only believe. And the little girl's up and walking around and everyone's amazed. And Jesus strictly charged them that no one should know about this and he told them to give her something to eat. She'd been sick, she hadn't been eating anything. He just raised her from the dead and I was like, well, she's going to be hungry. Give her some food. Isn't that an interesting detail to include, right? There's nothing more frightening than the death of a child. Nothing we would fear more. And when Jesus said, the child is not dead but sleeping, that's something that's worth thinking about. What did he mean by that? She had really died. Matthew makes that clear in his account. This is an actual resuscitation. Jesus referred to physical death as sleep on a number of occasions because Jesus Christ wanted to reorient our thinking about death. We as people think that death is final, the final destination of every human being. But Jesus Christ came into the world to make it known that death was not going to have the last say, that death was not going to be the final destination for those who believe. And so for the death of believers, the New Testament likes to refer to it as falling asleep. And here, this little girl who has actually physically died, Jesus is telling the crowd who didn't understand what he was saying, and the disciples who didn't expect what he was going to do, and the parents who never could have imagined what Christ was capable of, that this death was only temporary. said that she was died, but he was saying it's just temporary. That he was going to reverse it. He was going to wake her up. Just as he did in John chapter 11 when his friend Lazarus died, and he told his disciples, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. And they didn't understand what he meant, and so he had to clarify it. And you have to ask here, Jesus has to know that people aren't going to understand what he's saying. Is he intentionally deceiving the crowd of people and saying she's not dead but she is asleep? Is this part of his plan to keep it a secret? That he's going to raise her from the dead but then he's hoping that later people will not think that she's been raised from the dead but that she was just in a coma or had fallen into a deep sleep 
and that she'd gotten healed but not raised from the dead? Jesus does seem to allow some ambiguity and misunderstanding in what he says, but that's not the same thing as deceiving. The people were deceiving themselves by not believing in Jesus. And if they had trusted in Christ and believed in him, they would have sought out the meaning of what he said and they would have understood what he said. And so the fault here in misunderstanding is not on Jesus' part, but he is using their lack of faith to hide from them what is beneficial for this family and for the ministry of the Word of God. You see, Jesus wanted to keep this miracle quiet in contrast to the previous one. When he cast out the demon, he told him, go and tell everybody. But now when he's raising the dead, he says, keep it quiet, don't tell anyone. What's the difference? Well, the difference was he hadn't done any miracles over in Gerasa and he needed a witness and a testimony. He's already done plenty of miracles here in Galilee, in Capernaum. He doesn't need any more press. He doesn't need any more crowds. And in fact, it's becoming a distraction from people listening to the word of God. And so he tells it to be quiet because the miracle of raising the dead is as powerful as healing the leper. And he doesn't need any more press at this point. Also, the, the little girl doesn't need any more attention than she's going to get. She doesn't need to write a book about coming back from the dead. She doesn't need to go on a press conference journey about being raised from the dead. She doesn't need to become the center of attention. She just needs to live her life, eat her meal, and enjoy her family. That's what Jesus wants for her. So don't tell anyone, was what he told the parents and the disciples. So this brings us back to the beginning. These miracles, raising the dead, casting out thousands of demons at once, and telling this wind to stop blowing, are miracles that are so remarkable that they are actually terrifying. What would you do if you were in the presence of the one who had control over all of nature, who could cast out thousands of demons with a word, and who could turn back the power of death? What kind of feeling would you have standing next to that person? Well, the cure for every fear that afflicts the soul of man is the fear of God. Once you stand in his presence, once you understand who he is, once you tremble and hear his words of comfort, other fears vanish away. They are diminished in the presence of one greater. No matter what great thing you might be afraid of, things that are too powerful for you, things that are out of your control, when Jesus Christ stands in your presence, those seem small compared to the greatness that is in the Almighty Son of God. Do not fear. Only believe. Let's pray. Father God, you see the heart of each one of us here this morning and you see what it is that we are afraid of. You know what is troubling our hearts and our minds. Day to day, week to week, month to month. Maybe it only comes around at certain times and certain places. But you see and you know. And your command to us, your loving command, is to not fear to not be troubled. And we want that, Lord. We want to experience that kind of peace that was in the heart of Jesus Christ and still is in the heart of Jesus Christ today. We want the peace that comes from knowing you, the peace that comes from fearing you, the peace that comes from trembling in your presence and trembling at your word. Lord, give us that peace 
we pray for our good and for your glory in Jesus Christ. Amen.